Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's just a blessing to meet with you, and we'll be in the book of Hebrews today, if we'll turn there. Just want to give a shout out. Thanks to all those who are behind the scenes and keeping the facility clean. There's volunteers that come in that no one sees that uh, do such a great job. So thanks for all your work and your labor of love, and for all of you who serve in many different capacities. And so great to, uh, to celebrate our Savior, Jesus. So um, this book, Hebrews, it just extols the supremacy of Christ, that He is risen. And it's really a unique book when you look at it compared to other epistles because it starts with God. It's like God is the focus, and uh, it doesn't begin with, like the author, like Paul the Apostle to the saints and Thessalonica or anything like that. It just says God, and it just takes us straight to Him. And uh, let's pray. Thank you, God, that we can come to you now in prayer, that we can seek your face, that we can hear your voice, that we can read your word. And thank you that we're able to gather in your name. And we pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us to give us understanding of these truths and apply them to our lives. And just thank you for the family we are in Christ. Thank you for all those who, who uh, just are faithful to hold forth your word and to, to do your will. And thank you, Lord, for this place you've given us. And we ask your blessing upon it, that the kids would be blessed and ministered to, your comfort, your care, your compassion would be felt by all, and we'd walk in your love and unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is God made flesh, and when we're familiar with the story, when we're familiar with the scripture, there's a risk that we could almost bring Jesus down to our level. We could embrace, because Jesus was fully God, fully man, but we can begin to almost lose the the grandeur of who he is and his supremacy and his might today, right now. Uh, there's a book G.K. Chesterton wrote called The Everlasting Man. And he talked about the tendency in his day to talk about cavemen. And he says, you know, they're, they have clubs and they live in caves and they're really depicted as little more than a beast, grunting, clubbing their wives and dragging them to a cave. And he says, but the thing that they never talk about is what actually happened in the cave. Because we have evidence of what happened in the cave. We don't find an assortment of clubs or uh, battered wives. We find paintings of animals and people, artistic representations that you'd never expect from the caricature that was presented. So he says, if, it's, if there's a caveman, what was he doing? He was painting. He was doing something that no other animal would think to do or have the capacity to do. The will to observe what he sees, to paint it, to make an artistic representation of it. And his point was that man is not like other animals. Man is totally different than every animal. It's not like a dog began a rough sketch and a chimp started painting and man finished it in. God created man in his own image. In the same vein, based on Scripture, we look at the life of Jesus Christ and we say that he is not like any other man because he's God in human flesh. He has the wisdom, power, majesty of God come to us to reveal his truth, his gospel, and his grace. So, 
book of Hebrews, just a little background on it, it's a book that reads a bit like an essay, a bit like a sermon, and it finishes like a letter. It's universally accepted as biblical canon. It often quotes from the Old Testament. I think I didn't count them, but there's nearly 50 quotes. The human author is unknown. It's, a, uh, I guess, a source of debate among scholars of who actually wrote it. But we don't know, and frankly, it's not really a big deal because it is uh, inspired by God. And there's clues that help us estimate when it was written. It's early in the Christian era because there's no mention of the destruction of the temple, and that happened in 70 AD, and there's no mention of the persecution of Christians. So it's believed to have been written around 67 to 69 AD. Temple ministry, it seems, was still in practice at that time because the author takes a lot of time to go through what happened in the temple and how Jesus, as our great high priest, is greater than the high priest that served there. Also, at the end of the book, we have Timothy mentioned. So Timothy was around when it was written. So it's a very early book in the, uh, that time frame. And it's titled Hebrews because it's primarily written to Jewish Christians that were well-versed in the Scriptures. And there was this great effort made to urge Christians to continue in the faith, not to go back to the law, not to revert back to the Old Covenant, because there was pressure to do so. It warns against drifting, against unbelief, being dull of hearing, and despising God's Word. And the interesting thing is, is when we think about those, we might often pin that upon an unbeliever. But he's speaking to believers. He's saying we can drift. We can move from belief in God and start trusting ourselves or others or what we can do, being dull of hearing and hating, despising, turning away from God's word. Through the Bible, it says this, Coleridge said the Rom that Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, but that Hebrews revealed the superiority of the Christian faith. And it's in the superiority, it's in the supremacy of Christ, our faith rests. It's in Him we trust. We look to Him as the author and the finisher of our faith. And Jesus, He's the Lord of uh, religious Jews and Greek philosophers, of you, of me, of all. And this really is a masterful revelation of how the New Testament takes su its uh, superior over the old, just like the New Covenant is um, better than the old. Now, in our culture, it's like out with the old, in with the new. So we discard the old. Well, in this case, the new helps us to better appreciate the old because the Old Testament, it's pointing to Christ. Remember Jesus, he, he took his disciples, he opened their minds to um, comprehend the scriptures, and he said, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, they all spoke of me. And so he, he fleshed out what the Old Testament just could uh, have a shadow of. He made it real. So it's still relevant. It's still necessary. There's nothing in the Old Testament that's outdated. It's for our learning. It's God's wisdom and truth for us, his scriptures that point to Christ. It's like God in times past spoke through prophets, but now he speaks to us through his son. So it's a changed condition that we look to Christ. All right, so let's start in Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. 
God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Our text begins with God, pointing to him, our eternal, almighty creator, who breathed into Adam a living soul. And as I read this, I'm so acutely aware that it's just beyond me of how awesome God is. And we could just spend all day, and really every day right here, meditating on this and what it means and how it should impact our lives. Like this revelation, it ought to change the way I see the world, change the way I respond to challenges or to persecutions and difficulties. That the God who created man He has chosen to speak to us and reveal himself to us. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that God over the years has spoken at various times and in various ways. He spoke to Adam in the garden. Uh, He spoke to Moses from a burning bush and atop Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning, right? Speaking from a bush that was on fire but not burning up is very different than the earth shaking and the trumpets of heaven blowing and everyone trembling and saying, you know, Moses, you talk to God because we're afraid of him. God spoke to the prophet Samuel when he was a child in his bed, right? The light had gone out in the tabernacle and God just said, Samuel, Samuel, spoke his name. He spoke to Elijah in a cave with a still, small voice. There was an earthquake, there was a fire, but God spoke to him. God spoke through the prophets as well. He spoke to all through Balaam that the Messiah would come. He spoke to Barak through Deborah that said, go up against Sisera and overcome them. The prophet Nathan, he publicly exposed David's sin, right, in, the temp- in, the, in his palace before all of the people. The blind prophet Ahijah, he told the disguised wife of Jeroboam, that their son would pass away. Isaiah, he told King Hezekiah that he would recover from his illness and that he would add 15 years to his life. Now, there's no question the writer of Hebrews, he says we are in these last days. So we are in the last days when God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. Jesus was more than a prophet with a message because he is the message. He is the The Son of God come speaking not just as God, but He is God who speaks to us the truth. He's the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the New Testament, it it doesn't mean that the office or the role of a prophet is no more. Uh, The Deuteronomy 18 rules concerning whether a prophet is true or not. Uh, if they are in keeping with like what they say actually comes to pass. We see prophecy happening in the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Acts, it's a spiritual gift God gives. But the prophets before and after Christ, they've received a limited revelation. They have a message, but they don't know everything. God came and he spoke to us knowing all things. And there was no limitation of his knowledge and wisdom. 
He's the heir and creator of all. Now, verse 3, it says, through Jesus, the worlds were made. And that word worlds, it's translated from eons or ages. So he's created all time. He stands outside of time. He has entered time, and he speaks to us. So all things and time are created and sustained by Jesus. Like by the word of his mouth, things were made, things continue as they are, things will be unmade someday when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And he's described as the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Now, God can do what people cannot do. Artists, they can make a representation of someone, right? They can do a very nice likeness, but it's not that person. It's just an image of them. You can take a video. It's just recording a past event. That's not the person themselves. Reproductions of original art, they can be printed. At a glance, they appear like the original, but there's only one original. You can 3D print something. It's just a copy Today, uh, in Jesus' time, they would use like ink and a stamp if they wanted to show authority or they would have an engraving that they would put in a coin and they'd have those cast and made. Jesus is more than a copy of the original. He's the, the genuine article. He is God in the flesh. The same character, same substance as God himself. So it's like he is the... The beam of the Father. If the Father is luminous, well, he is the actual light coming from the Father. There's a distinction between Father and Son, but they are equally God. Equal in power and authority, yet distinct persons along with the Holy Spirit. Please turn to John chapter 14, starting in verse 6. In the study of John we're doing Friday nights, it just occurred to me how there's nothing that we have on this earth that we can really compare to God because he is totally other. He is beyond this world. He is, uh, like there's no, I guess like thunder and lightning, earthquakes. These are, these are big events and can be very overwhelming for us, but they, they're just the edges of his ways. They don't uh, convey the fullness of his power or his might. So when we're talking about these comparisons, everything falls a bit flat when compared to God. So we'll have Jesus speak to us. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So Jesus says, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not that they're one and the same, but that he is God. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit who indwelt him. It's like the mystery of the triune Godhead. It's been revealed to us in the scripture, but we can barely grasp how it's possible. There's that element of faith where God has said it and we believe it. 
The writer of Hebrews spoke of all Jesus accomplished. He says, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by, by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. In the law, the Psalms and prophets, Jesus alluded to all that he would accomplish as Messiah. He would provide atonement for sinners by his death and resurrection. And after his death, burial, and ascension, he went to the Father and he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He came as the servant of all, but he's the one who deserves to be served. He's worthy to be served. Like a servant wouldn't be sitting when the master came into the room, right? The servant would be on his feet saying, what do you want me to do? How can I help you? And waiting for him to speak, not speaking over him. Now, Jesus, he has ascended and he sat down by the father. Angels were very much respected and even venerated among the Jews. They had a very special place in their theology because we see angels represented in the tabernacle, right? You have embroidery of angels on curtains. You have the angels on the mercy seat bowing, the cherubim there. And they were known as God's messengers, those who did his will. And so if you saw an angel, there were times where even a Christian like John, the apostle, in Revelation, he bowed down. He fell down before him in worship. And the angel's like, hey, don't do that. I'm not God. And so the case that has been made here is Jesus is superior to all the angels. He's the one sitting down, whereas the angels are his ministering spirits serving him. He's supreme. The angels are not even comparable to Christ. People ascribe greatness to angels, but they, are, they have no comparison to the greatness of Jesus. Paul, he warns believers in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, because you might think, oh, well, there's no chance I'd ever worship an angel. Well, that's, we have this warning for a reason, because there's a potential we could. We could give them more credit than they deserve. And really, if you're giving an angel credit, you're now no longer giving Christ the glory and worship he deserves. Colossians 2.18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. It's like, why ask for the aid of an angel why ask for a servant when we have Jesus Christ, our mediator, who sits at the right hand of the Father, the head of the church? We can go straight to the head, and he will speak. Angels are his servants. It's like, why should I ask the servant to do something when the master, he has servants at his disposal to have them do whatever he wants? So we talk to him. He's the one. Continuing Hebrews 1 Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now in this passage, there's a lot of verses that talk about angels. 
and reference from the Old Testament showing the superiority of Christ over all angels. And there's no contest. It's not close. If you're interested, you could look up these verses in Psalm 2, 6, and 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14. I see some people taking notes, so I won't talk too fast. Psalm 97. So you could look those up at a later time. So the first point the writer of Hebrews makes is Jesus is uniquely called my son by God. There's no other angel that was called my son. There's only four angels mentioned by name in the whole Bible. It's like, oh, do I know what they are? So you have Michael, Gabriel, Apollyon or Abaddon, and Lucifer. Those are the only angels mentioned in the Bible. Now, it's, while it's true, angels are collectively at times called sons of God, none of them have the title son with an inheritance, where he says, my son. So Jesus is totally distinct from all angelic spiritual beings. He's the heir of the kingdom. He has dominion over all heaven and earth, men and spirits. I don't know if they did this in Australia. I've only seen it in movies. Uh, but in the 60s, when a child was born in the States they would show them. So they would have a, some glass and they would have a maternity ward and the little babies would be carted in there during visiting hours and you could look and you could see 10 or 20 babies all in this room and they, they didn't want dad or anyone else spreading germs and so uncles and aunts could look in. Oh, is that him? I'm not sure. Trying to read the little tag on the, the cot to know which baby is yours. Today, if there was a mix-up and all the identification was lost, they would be able to test the blood and see whose parents that baby is related to. They would be able to tell. Many angels put on human form for a season, but none of them, in one sense, had divine DNA. None of them were God, not one. Even though they did miracles and they knew things, a message given from God, only Jesus is God. And he took human form and walked among us. He retained his scars. He's now ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Turn to Psalm 97, starting in verse 1. There's a few verses we'll turn to today. At the end, it quotes, um, the quote is seen from Hebrews. So this points to Jesus and his worthiness to be worshipped that God commanded all the angels worship Jesus. No angel is ever told to be worshipped or venerated. Psalm 97.1, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Readers of the Old Testament, if you were in David's day or Solomon's day, you'd read this and you would just think, God, God. God the Father, the, the hills quake in his presence. They melt like wax before him. But now in Hebrews, in the New Testament, he says, 
This is talking about Jesus. This relates to Jesus. He's the one to be worshipped. He is great as God. He is God. He is to be worshipped. That word gods, all you gods, it's Elohim, which is translated God or rulers or angels. So the second point the Hebrews, that Hebrews makes is that Jesus deserves the worship of angels. Angels are to worship him. The sons of God, it says, shouted for joy when the earth was created by Jesus. And when Jesus was born, angels, they were seen in Bethlehem praising God for the Savior who had been born, his only son. Continuing in verse 7 of Hebrews 1. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The writer of Hebrews is not finished. He has more to give us. These quotes are from Psalm 104, verse 4, and Psalm 45, 6, and 7. The third reason why Jesus is superior over all angels is that they are his servants. He sits on an everlasting throne, and he holds the scepter. He is sovereign in the kingdom of God and over all the earth. Angels are ministers created to serve him. Jesus does not serve them. A scepter in the ancient world, it speaks of dominion and authority and power, the right to rule, the right to make judgments. In the book of Esther, remember the law of the Medes and Persians, it said that whoever appeared before the king unannounced was to be put to death, except the king extend the scepter. Then that, it's like the scepter wielded by the king had the power of pardon, so the, the king could pardon the one who had broke the law to save their life. And Jesus is holding the scepter. He's the one who holds that. He has all the authority. He has all the power to forgive, to impute righteousness, to save, to pardon. Balaam said this concerning the coming king in Numbers twenty four seventeen: I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Jesus is unique in that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The promise, and he is that Messiah. And it says, anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. There were many people whom the Holy Spirit came upon for a time. Right, Gideon, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he, he summoned the nation to battle. Right, Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he had great physical strength. Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwelt him, was upon him more than anyone else because he is God, made flesh. Now, when you think of Jesus, do you see him as like perpetually serious or glad? thinking with the weight of the world upon him, the you know, sin of humanity. Like when you know that something's amiss, doesn't that burden you? It, when you hear of something bad that's happened to one other person, your heart breaks for them and you're filled with sorrow and grief. Now he knows it all, all at once. 
And yet, he's been anointed with the oil of gladness more than his companions. It's true, he is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief, but he's also the one who gives us fullness of joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit. We might, because of our guilt for sin, see him as perpetually scowling and troubled, like, oh, if you only knew, type thing. (laughs) Jesus is the most joyful. He is the most glad His love for all, it's perfectly combined with the hatred of sin, and he is a savior. He seeks to save out of compassion. Missing from him is that frustration that can mark us, the annoyance with others or preoccupation with self. He rested in the goodness of the Father. It's like Jesus had this perspective of knowing who he was, knowing who his Father was, and trusting him completely. He had perfect peace. And the one who says, uh, it's kind of like if Jesus is the one who gives us life, he has to be alive. And if Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, it can't be like the peace of this world that's a mirage that you're striving for but you never can gain. He has it and he gives it and he leaves it with us. So he is one who has, he is our perfect peace. Hebrews 1 verse 10. And again, more scriptures. It's like he's, the writer of Hebrews is going back again and again. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. This quote is from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. And it shows the eternal immutability or unchanging nature of Jesus, that he is Lord and God over all. He was there at the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. And one day he is going to take this universe and fold it up like you do your jacket. And he's going to put it away. And he's going to create a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And you go, wow, that is power beyond comprehension, right? just to fold up this world like a blanket or like a shirt. We live in a world where change is constant. A baby is born and they begin to grow. They're changing. Six months, they look totally, they can look quite different than they did before. A car, it was once shiny and new, it becomes uh, broken down a heap. Our clothes, our shoes, they wear out. Our bodies begin to wear out. You might not look your age, but at some point you're going to start feeling your age. You will know that you're getting older. Your body is going to tell you in many ways. King David, he passed his authority to King Solomon late in his life because he was old and his body couldn't even regulate his his temperature properly. So he had his son. It's like the, the scepter passed from David to Solomon because he couldn't carry it anymore. He couldn't judge as he once did. Parents, they acquire property and they pass them on to their children. But Jesus, he laid the foundations of heaven and earth and he will lay the next one. He's not going anywhere. He's sitting on the throne. He's holding the scepter. He's the one worthy of worship and praise. He has authority over all. This universe is vast. It is ancient, but he is the ancient of days. He goes beyond that. He will, it, he will exist and live. He lived before it. And he will live long after 
uh, trillions of years have passed. Seasons come and go, but Jesus is the same today and forever. And praise him that immutability is a divine characteristic. He does not change, and he's perfect. Hebrews verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So our passage goes to a crescendo here with a quote from Psalm 110 verse 1 where David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It's an intriguing passage because the patriarch David and king, for him to write of his descendant as my Lord, it was very out of place. Kings are well known for broadcasting their might and they have titles and their acknowledgments. But it's like David is almost just an observer of what's happening. He's out of the picture and he's saying, the Lord, God, Yahweh, he said to my Lord, Adon. So we hear the word Adonai, which is a name for God. Adonai is plural. Adon is singular, and he says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord. So who is this? This is the Messiah, the promised king that would come from David's line, the one who would seek and save sinners. Victory obtained on Calvary, Jesus ascended to the Father, and he is now sitting by him, and he says, sit by me till I make your enemies your footstool. To answer that question in verse 13, God never told an angel to sit down and to sit down by him. It's like having an equal place on the throne. Angels are ministering spirits sent forth from God to do his will, to minister to those who will inherit salvation. God does not serve them. So Jesus, he's superior over all men and angels, seeing he was called my son. God commands angels to worship him. Jesus sits on the throne of the kingdom of God. He holds the scepter. Angels are created, but he is the creator and immutable. No angel was ever invited to sit at the right hand of the Father, but Jesus was. And you might be thinking, so what? I've heard all this before. This is nothing new. And that's exactly why we need to hear it again. Because if you look in the first verse of chapter 2, what does it say? The takeaway Hebrews 2.1, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's possible to know Jesus, to acknowledge him as Lord, to have a distinction between Jesus and all the other angels, but it doesn't follow that we'll always honor him as we should, to keep him, from our perspective, in his rightful place, on the throne, holding the scepter, Eternal, immutable, all-powerful. The God who created us, who loves us, who saved us. He is the one we worship. He is the one we follow. He is the one we obey and praise. The fact that this has been written to us by God, it shows us it's probable that at some point we'll start ascribing ability to ourselves or to angels that only belongs to God. Only Jesus deserves that. We can be overwhelmed with the idea of a satanic attack or demonic forces at work, and we imagine it falls to us to do something, to stand in the gap, as if Jesus does not sit on the throne, 
and that he's not holding the scepter, and that he's kind of lost sight of what's happening in this world because it's going mad. But he is on the throne, and he bids us look to him in faith and obedience. Our knowledge of theology, it has the potential to make us dull of hearing because we already know it. Senseless to the Holy Spirit, careless, even aimless, because we're like, I'm set. My eternity is secure in Christ. And we forget to venerate Christ. We forget to trust and obey Him and seek Him and do His will. Because He calls us to serve Him. That word drifting, it doesn't happen in a moment. Drifting is slow. Drifting may be undiscernible. You may not realize you're drifting. It's like when I was a kid and I went to the beach and there was a bit of a rip and, and my family was right behind me and I'm playing and having a good time and then I look back and I'm like, where is everyone? And I had gone 100 meters to the right. I didn't realize that I was drifting. They, they still had the blanket out, the umbrella and everything. So it's like, wow, I came to my senses. I got out of the ocean and I went back in. We can be so engrossed with what's happening in the world, we can lose sight of our awesome God and Savior who holds the scepter, who reigns on high, who loves us, who has given the Holy Spirit to us. Please turn to Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, because this is God's will for you. It's such a good passage as we embark on this new book so relevant for us. It reminds us of the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Isn't that awesome? That we can know God. We can know the hope of His calling. We can know the riches of the inheritance in Christ. We can know the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. The power that made Jesus rise from the dead, that cast off the fetters of the grave, it's the same power that transforms our hearts, that opens our eyes, that renews our minds, that delivers us from sin and harmful addictions, and foolish thoughts, and unbelief, and death. Not only did that power raise Jesus from the dead, but it, he ascended, and he's now at the right hand of the Father, 
sitting enthroned over all, above all principalities, over all powers, Satan included, for all time. (laughs) There's a lot of alls in there. It's like, he's over everything. I hope you know that. I hope you realize who Jesus is and where he's sitting and what he's doing. It's that same power at work in Christ that raised from the dead that causes you to be born again, that causes you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that causes the fruit of the Spirit to be evident in your life and those, those spiritual gifts to be manifested. And now you're part of his body, the church. Jesus is the head and you are now by him. You're connected to him, not just sitting next to him, but you are in him. It's like my arm is connected to the, my head because it's part of my body. You are now connected to Jesus Christ, just like the vine is connected to the branches. Of Christ's fullness, we have received and grace for grace. That final promise Jesus made to the churches in Revelation 3, 22 and 21 is especially relevant concerning our matter today. It says, this is Jesus' promise to the church. To him who overcomes, I will sit I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, whole, what the Spirit says to the churches. We are undeserving to be servants of God and he calls us his sons. He makes us part of his body. He lets us sit with him on his throne. Kind of reminds me when a friend of mine's like, oh, I, I have access to the lounge at the airport. And I'm like, oh, I don't have lounge access. And, and I felt a bit out of place. I felt like, oh, I don't really deserve to be here. This isn't my, I don't have the right to be here. Everyone else has either paid money or flown all these miles to have access to this privileged place. But I'm with him so I can go in. And it's like, we don't deserve to go to heaven. We don't deserve to have the fellowship of the Spirit, the oil of gladness upon us. We don't deserve to be forgiven and to be saved and to be helped and comforted, and yet we're connected to Christ. We're not just with Him. We are in Him and He in us through the Spirit. Doesn't that make you glad that that's what God has done? That's who Jesus is, and this is why we worship Him and follow Him, because He is worthy of that. Now, the first Sunday of the month, we receive communion together. It's a great opportunity to remember and to proclaim our Lord's death till he comes. It's like we soberly look back on the price paid for our sin when Jesus' body was broken and his blood shed. It's also joyful rest in what Jesus has accomplished by forgiving our sins, by bringing us into his family, by adopting us as his children. We've been born again. It's received with gladness knowing what's coming. Jesus is going to return. We are going to rule and reign with him. We will forever be together and never apart. Always enjoying the salvation of our Savior. So it's like present, the past, present, and future all rolled into one with gladness because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Our Savior, he humbled himself He demonstrated his love for lost sinners so we could be redeemed, so we could know him, so we could serve him and experience fellowship with him and with one another. So I would like to invite the worship team forward for a song. And while that's happening, 
the communion elements will be passed around in a, in a COVID-safe manner. And uh, we will, once we have all received, I'll just uh, pray together. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior and for making uh, just making us see how awesome you are and all that Jesus has accomplished and the great plans you have. It's overwhelming to think about, Lord. I pray you would enlarge our understanding. You would increase our faith. You would cause the reality of who Jesus is to be written on our hearts and demonstrated in our lives and that we would remember the price Jesus has paid for us, that we are totally undeserving of your forgiveness. We are undeserving that you would even acknowledge us, Lord. But you have chosen to lavish your love upon us, to offer us forgiveness and salvation by your grace, to call us sons. None of the angels have you said to sit on your throne as you have sit on your Father's throne, and yet you have, you have that place prepared for us. We are so unworthy, and you are worthy, Lord. We bow before you. We worship you. We praise and adore you. And I ask, Lord, that you would show us our need for forgiveness. You would show us our need to submit to you humbly and to receive this truth and to walk in it. Lord, I pray that it, you would continue ministering to our hearts through your word uh, during this time and even as we leave this place, that we might know you, praise you, and honor you, for you are good and everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.